This morning we're in 1 Peter 2, and we come to part 5 of this series called Growing Together as God's Spiritual House. We're coming now to this final sermon in this series as we've been working our way through 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. In recent years, there's been a, a lot of debate about whether or not America is a Christian nation. According to the 2022 Pew Research Survey, 45% of Americans say the United States should be a Christian nation. But only one-third of Americans say the nation is a Christian nation. And then there's debate on what it actually means for America to be a Christian nation. The views on that are wide-ranging and are often ambiguous. I'm sure if you were to bring this topic up at your last Thanksgiving meal, you could go around the table and you would get a lot of different opinions and viewpoints to these questions. And so, is America a Christian nation? The answer to that is no. It is not. It's not a Christian nation. Then we might ask the question, is there such thing as a Christian nation? The answer to that question is, yes, there is. There is such thing as a Christian nation. But it's not the United States or any other nation on the earth. There is only one true Christian nation on the earth, and that is the church. It's the church. The spiritual house of God, which is what we've been talking about over the past several weeks. We, as the church of Jesus Christ, are the only true Christian nation. There are Christians that are found in nations all over the world, but there is only one Christian nation, and that is the spiritual house of God, the church. And we see this found in our text before us this morning, in 1 Peter chapter 2. And so follow along as I read our passage for us, and just to set the context, I will begin in verse 4. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. Peter says this, And coming to him is to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, 
and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, as, as we think about the church, we've said a lot about the church over the past few weeks. We're studying this topic here on the spiritual household of God. And we've talked about how the church's foundation is Christ. Christ himself. He is the chief cornerstone upon which the entire church is built on. Then we talked about how the church is to function. There are duties that we have. There are responsibilities. As those who are living stones, we are a holy priesthood who are called to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. That is our function. That is our duty. That's what we've been called to do. Then we looked at the faith of those who belong to God's spiritual house and how we are honored people who believe in Christ. And because we believe in Him, we will not be disappointed. We will not be put to shame. Or another way that we could say that is we will not be shaken because our foundation is not shaken and cannot be shaken. And then last week we saw the failure of those who don't belong to the spiritual house of God. These are unbelievers who reject Christ. They are those who are disobedient to the word. They are disobedient to the gospel. They don't believe it. And because of their disbelief, they belong to the world. They belong to darkness. They're not in the light. They don't belong to the church and they are destined for destruction because of their disbelief. This morning we now come to verses 9 and 10 in this passage and I want us to look at the favor toward those in God's spiritual house. We as living stones who belong to God's spiritual house, we are not just a saved people, although we are a saved people. We are also a favored people who are favored by God. Another way we could say this is that you and I are a privileged people. As the church, we are privileged people. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of what God has done in us. And as we remember the context of 1 Peter, this is great encouragement to a people who are being persecuted. Remember, that's who Peter is writing to. He's writing to persecuted believers. Those who, according to 1 Peter 1.1, are residing as aliens. They're aliens in this world. They're different. These are most likely Gentile, Gentile believers, probably some Jewish Christians as well who are God's people. 
but who are spread out and living in the midst of a godless world. They are living in, a, in provinces in the Roman Empire, the believers are, and they are being persecuted by these people in these provinces. What are those provinces? Peter told us back in chapter 1 and verse 1. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These believers are spread out across these provinces and they are being persecuted. And they are enduring this persecution. And as they're enduring this persecution, the world is against them. They may have even felt at times like God had forgotten them because of the persecution that they were enduring. But as Peter writes here in verses 9 and 10, he reminds them that they are not forgotten by God. They're not forgotten by God, but in fact they are favored by God. These are favored people. They are a privileged people, even though they are enduring much persecution. So as we look at verses 9 and 10, we're going to see what God says about us, His church, as those who are His favored people. And in verse 9, we see first that we are a special possession of God. Our first point here this morning is that we are a a special possession of God. Notice again what Peter says there in verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We'll stop right there. Now, notice that word but there at the beginning of verse 9. Why does Peter have that word there? Well, he's come right off of talking about unbelievers in verses 7 and 8. This is a a contrast here. This is a a contrast here to those who don't believe and who don't belong to the spiritual household of God. They are disbelievers. They deny Christ. They are disobedient to the Word and they are destined for destruction. Peter now says, but you... But you... He comes right back to these believers here. He's saying that That's you. You aren't like them. You, as believers, you are different. You're set apart from them. What Peter does here then is he gives us four descriptions of what we are as the spiritual house of God. He gives us four, four descriptions. And notice that what he describes here is what we are. Are. Notice it says that there in verse 9. But you are a chosen race. Not you will be this in the future, but what we presently are as those who belong to the spiritual house of God. This is what we are. So, what are these four descriptions that Peter gives us here? Well, number one, he says we are a chosen race. We are a chosen race. Now, Peter already told us back in chapter 1, in verses 1 and 2, that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. We are saved and are a part of God's spiritual house because God chose us. 
Greek word that's used there is eklektos. One commentator says about this Greek word eklektos, he said it means those selected or picked out, and in the scripture it usually defines one who is the object of choice or of divine favor. Do you hear that? The object of choice or of divine favor. That is, we are a people who are objects of divine favor. We have the favor of God upon us. God chose us, not because of anything that we have done, but because of His grace and because of His mercy. In fact, Peter, being a Jew and knowing the Old Testament scriptures, was most likely thinking of Deuteronomy 7.6, where Moses says of Israel in Deuteronomy 7.6, he says this, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Moses goes on, he says, The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God says of Israel that he did not choose them because they were more in number. It wasn't because of who they were or anything that they did. But God chose them because of his love for them. It's all because of his love. God set his love on Israel. And that's the only reason for them being chosen by God. Because God chose to love them. And the same is true of us. God didn't choose us because we were good people. Or had some kind of great status. Or because of anything that you and I have done. He chose us because of His love and His mercy. It's all because of His love and His mercy. In fact, Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 16, he said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Jesus says to his own disciples, You didn't choose me, I chose you. I was the one who selected you. It was because of his love, and as we're going to see, it's because of his mercy as well. That God chooses us. Notice what Peter says about us collectively as a church. He says here that we are a chosen race. We are a chosen race. The Greek word there for race is genos, which means a relatively large group of people, a nation, a people, or a family. A family. It has the idea of a people with a common heritage who share the unity of a common life. That is, the church is a group of Christians who are united by our common heritage through what? Our new birth. It's through our new birth. 
which is exactly what Peter had talked about back in chapter 1 and verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. You're a born again people. We have a common heritage through the new birth that we are all sons and daughters of our God. That's who we are. We're those who've been born again into a new family, a new people, a new race, a new race. And so although we talk about different races in the world, red, brown, yellow, black, and white, right? We sing it in Sunday school all the different races in the world. Really, we could say that there are only two different races in the world. There's only two. There are those who are of the unsaved human race, and there are those who are the chosen human race. You have the unbelievers, and you have the believers. You have those who belong to this world, and those who belong to Christ. You have those who are in darkness and those who are in the light. And so as the church, we are a chosen race, a chosen people. Number two, there's a second description of the church that Peter gives us here, and that is that we are a royal priesthood. He says that we are a royal priesthood. Now, we've talked about being a holy priesthood back up in verse 5, where Peter told us there that we are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That is, as the church, we are a part of a priesthood who offer up spiritual sacrifices unto our God. But here, Peter says we are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. Peter, knowing his Old Testament, most likely is drawing from Exodus 19 and verse 6, where God said of Israel, and you shall be to me a kingdom. You hear that royal language there? You, are, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That word royal that Peter uses here is only used here and it refers to that which belongs to, is appointed to, or is suitable for a king. That which is suitable for a king. The idea is someone who is fit for a king. Someone who is fit for a king. Now, here is what is amazing about this. In the Mosaic Law, the offices of king and priest were mutually exclusive. You had the office of a king and you had the office of a priest. And they were mutually exclusive. You remember when King Uzziah entered into the temple to offer incense at the altar and what did God do to him? He struck him with leprosy. God judged him. God punished him because he was the king and he was not to function as a priest. That was for the priest to do. He was a king. He was supposed to act as a king. It was the priest's duty to offer the incense on the altar, not the king's. However, 
there was one king in the Old Testament who was also a priest, who predated the Mosaic law. His name was Melchizedek. Melchizedek, whom we read about in Genesis 14, 18. He was a man who prefigured Christ as both a king and a priest. Why was he allowed to be a, a king and a priest? Because he predated the Mosaic law. It wasn't until the Mosaic law came that said, there's a distinction now between the office of king and the office of priest. Melchizedek predated that. And so he functioned, he was a, a man who functioned as a, a king and a priest. And he prefigures Christ as both a king and a priest. And Christ, being in the order of Melchizedek, was both a king and a priest. Read this, read about this in Hebrews chapter 7. Now, as, as those of us who are in God's spiritual house, we are of a royal line because we are in Christ, who is the king of kings, right? We belong to him. We're in the royal line. We are, as Peter says here, a royal priesthood. And as a royal priesthood, we function as priests who offer up not physical sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices. And this is God's favor upon us as his chosen people. That we are royalty. Because we belong to the king. We've been born again by him. And because we belong to Christ, we are royal priests who will rule and reign with him, with our king. We will rule and reign with him. In fact, listen to the promise given in Revelation 3.21. It says this, He who overcomes, this is Jesus, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. Whoa. On your throne? It says, yeah. I'll grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. It's a promise that's given to us. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. What's that? That's kingly language. It's royal language. We are going to reign with him. What a privilege. What favor we have been shown by God that in Christ, as those who belong to God's spiritual house, we are a royal priesthood. We're royalty. And so we are a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. Number three, there's a third description here. Peter says we're a holy nation. We're a holy nation. This word nation in the Greek is the word ethnos, which means a community of people who are held together by the same laws, customs, and mutual interests. Do you hear that? Laws, customs, and mutual interests. Now, this was Israel. This is what God chose Israel to be, to be a holy nation. 
God called them, God chose them to be a holy nation, a distinct nation from all of the other nations around them. But what did they do? They failed. They failed by their unbelief. And what happened to them? They became just like the nations around them. And God judged them for that. Because they took on the practices of the nations around them and they began to worship idols just like the nations around them, the pagan nations around them, are worshiping their idols. They didn't believe God. They were called to be a holy nation, but they failed. But Peter now takes that same idea and he applies that now to the church. Now, as I said earlier, is there such thing as a Christian nation? Yes, there is. But who is the only Christian nation? The church is. The church is a Christian nation. We are to be a distinct nation, a holy people, a people who are held together by the same laws, customs, and mutual interests. Where do we get our laws from? Right here, from the Word of God, right? We sit under this authority. That's who we are to be. And as a holy nation, we're to be different from all those people around us who are not a part of our nation who are not a part of the church. We're called to be distinct, separate from them. We are to live as, notice Peter says there, a holy nation. Oftentimes we hear that word holy and what comes to our mind? We think of the word perfect. But that word holy there actually means to be distinct or separate from. To be distinct or separate from. This is what God called Israel to be. But they didn't separate from the nations. They didn't separate from the nations around them, but they embraced their practices and they turned away from God. But now as the church, we're called to be the separate ones. A distinct nation that's different from the world around us. We're not to practice what they practice, but we are to be those who are governed by the Word of God as we submit to the laws of our God. We're to be separated unto the Lord that as we live our lives for Him. Israel failed. They failed. So now we as the church are the holy nation. And we will be the holy nation until God saves the nation of Israel in the future as we read in Romans chapter 11. God's not done with Israel. God still has a plan for Israel. A purpose for them. God will save the nation of Israel. But until that time comes, God has called us to be a holy nation. The church. The spiritual household of God. We are to be a unique people, a separated people. And as God's holy nation, then, we enjoy God's special presence and favor because we belong to Him. We belong to Him. 
So Peter says here, we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And number four, he says, we are a people for God's own possession. And here, Peter is most likely referring back to Exodus 9.5, which says this, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And this description of us should amaze us. We are God's own possession. One commentator says that word people there is a collective singular noun and indicates the unity of believers as God's private possession belonging exclusively to Him. We belong exclusively to our God. We are His possession. We once did not belong to God. But now, through Christ, we have been bought by the blood of Christ and we belong to Him. And that is really the idea here behind this word possession. This word possession here, it means to be acquired or purchased with the idea of treasuring that possession. Did you hear that? To be acquired or purchased with the idea of treasuring that possession possession we are God's own possession and he treasures us because he paid the price for us he paid the price to redeem us and what were we purchased with Paul tells us in Acts 28 and verse 20 When he tells the Ephesian elders, he says, Shepherd, the the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. We've been bought with the blood of Christ. We've been purchased by the blood of Christ. And we are God's special people whom he has shown favor to. We belong to him. Church, this is glorious news. This is amazing. We belong to God. And we belong to Him, not because of anything that we've done, but because God has chosen to show mercy upon us. And so, as the spiritual house of God, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. But, there's a specific purpose for this, which leads now to our second point, point number two, and what we will call or what we will say here is that we have a specific purpose for God. We have a specific purpose for God. Not only are we a special possession of God, but we also have a specific purpose for God. Notice what Peter says there in the next part of verse 9. He says, So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Notice those two words there, so that. So that. That's called a purpose clause there. A purpose clause. It's, It's the purpose to which God has called us to be His. You see, there's a purpose for which God has called us to be a part of His spiritual house. 
It's not so that we can boast about how great we are. It's not so that we can sit by with pride and arrogance telling those around us that we are chosen and they aren't. God's purpose in saving us is to declare His greatness to others through us. God has chosen us so that He would declare His greatness through us to the watching world. Now, this is also what God had called Israel to do. Peter, again, knowing his Old Testament, is probably alluding here to Isaiah 43.21, which says, The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. I chose them, I called them, I formed them for myself. For what? For what purpose? To declare my praise. Israel was to proclaim God's praises to the pagan nations around them. And yet they failed to do that. But this is our purpose now as the spiritual household of God. In fact, notice that word proclaimed there in verse 9. This word in the Greek is only found here, and it means to tell out or to make widely known. Some even render this word as meaning to advertise. To advertise. On our short 10-minute drive to church, there are five different billboards that we go by. Coming down 35. Five different billboards that are advertising for some business around here. You even have digital billboards that are advertising now multiple businesses. However many they can get on there. That's essentially what the church is called to be. We are to advertise to the world about what God has done for us. In a sense, church... We are called to be walking billboards. It's what we've been called to be. So that, there's the purpose. So that we would go and tell the world about our God. One commentator says this word here conveys the picture of a message being proclaimed to those outside concerning what has taken place within. It indicates the uh, evangelistic function of the church. Both word and conduct are involved. Going to tell those outside what has taken place within. Go to tell those who are living in the darkness about what our God has done in drawing us to Himself into the light and being children of the light. You see, in many advertisements, you see mainly pictures with some words on them. These advertisements, they try to capture your attention with the pictures. Those pictures are used to to draw your attention. And our, our conduct in the church should be like those pictures. That is, we should capture the attention of the world as looking a lot different than them. People should be able to look at our lives and go, 
Why are you so weird? Why are you so different? I'm glad you asked because I'm called to be a walking billboard. Now I'm going to tell you. And you see, we, we, we don't just stop with the picture, though. We have to use what? Words. We've got to use words. We've got to tell them. Tell them about our God. Tell them what our God has done for us. Tell them about our God who has sent His only Son to save sinners like us who died on a cross and rose again on the third day, and who offers eternal life to all who would repent of their sin and believe in Christ. Tell them. Proclaim that message to them. That's what we're called to do. You see, that's our responsibility as those who have been shown favor by God. Yes, we have been shown favor by God, but with that favor, with that privilege, comes great responsibility. Comes great responsibility. We as, as royalty are ambassadors for the king. And our job is to proclaim the excellencies of our king, of him. In fact, that's what Peter tells us here, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now, notice that word excellencies there. The word excellencies could also be translated as praises, which is how some translations translated. Maybe some of your translations that you have in front of you says that. It says praises. Why? Why praises? Well, that's exactly what Isaiah 43.21 says. It's what Israel was to do, to declare God's praises. What does it mean then to, to declare God's praises? Well, implied in this is both worship and evangelism. It's worship and evangelism. We praise Him, we worship Him as the one and only true God. It's compared to all the, the pagans who worship false gods. It's what we do. We worship the one true God. But there's also evangelism involved in this. As Peter says, proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That there is a description of our conversion. It's a description of our conversion. God took us who were living in darkness and called us out of that darkness into His marvelous light. Isn't that amazing? And our God did that. You can think back to the, to the time in your life where you were living in darkness. You weren't saved. Where you didn't believe upon Christ. Where you weren't living for Him. Where you thought you were a good person. Maybe even a good person who was going to heaven. And yet the reality is, you were in darkness. On your way to hell. But what did God do? God came and He took you out of that darkness. 
and he placed you into the light. He saved you. This metaphor here of, of darkness and light is found in both the Old and the New Testament. Paul says in Colossians 1.13, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and <clears throat> transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. God did that. He plucked us out of the darkness and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, which is the kingdom of what? Light. Isn't that what we read in John chapter 1 this morning? That he is light. We now belong to him. We're now living in his kingdom. We're no longer living in the kingdom of darkness. We've been saved from that kingdom. And we now live in the kingdom of light. Darkness here is representative of sin and moral darkness and is the state of every unbeliever. Every unbeliever is in this state. Due to their sin, the state of their soul is darkness. But light is representative of life and salvation and the place where God dwells. Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, for you, were, you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. We're not of darkness anymore. We're sons of light. This is the place of life and blessedness and joy where we are no longer bound by sin. But we have a moral understanding of what is right and we are now enabled to do what is right. We not only understand righteousness, but we can now live righteous lives because we've been empowered by our God to live righteous lives. This is amazing, church. This is what our God has done for us. He's transferred us into the light, into His Notice what Peter says there at the end of verse 9 into his marvelous light. This is marvelous light. It's, it's awesome. It's wonderful. This word marvelous here, it means to create wonder or amazement because of its nature. We're in his marvelous light. We're to be in awe of our God. As we are those who live in his kingdom. And the amazing thing is, God did this. God did this to us, for us. God's the one who's called us out of darkness and placed us into the light. There's nothing that we have done to remove ourselves from darkness and put ourselves in the light. God is the one who's done it. And now... Our purpose as those who live in the light is to exemplify that to the world and to tell them of what our God has done for us and what He will do for all who repent and trust in Him. That's what we're called to do. 
And so we are a special possession of God. We have a specific purpose for God. Finally, point number three this morning, we are a saved people by God. We are a saved people by God. Look at verse 10 and notice what Peter tells us here. He says, For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice in verse 10 there, you have some words in the NAS that are in all capital letters. Why are they there in all caps? Well, it's because Peter is quoting again from the Old Testament. Peter is an Old Testament theologian. He understands the Old Testament. He knows his Old Testament. He has a tremendous knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures, and he just continues to draw on them and describe us as the spiritual house of God. Peter here, in verse 10, is referencing back to the book of Hosea. Specifically, chapters 1 and two of Hosea. But what Peter is most likely what, what Peter most likely has in his mind is specifically Hosea 2:23, which says this: "I will sow her for myself in the land. I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion, and I will say to those who are not my people, "You are my people, and they will say, "You are my God." Hosea 2.23. What's interesting here is that the Apostle Paul takes these same words and he applies them to both Jews and Gentiles in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9, Paul quotes this exact same verse. But in Hosea, the prophet tells us that God rejected Israel because of their unbelief. But the promise is that He will restore them again one day. God will restore Israel. That there's the context of Hosea. God will say to those who are not his people, you are my people. He's going to restore Israel. God will save Israel in the future and they will be his people. But both Peter and Paul take the words of Hosea and they apply them now to the church. They apply them to the church. Not that the church is the fulfillment of Hosea, because Israel is the specific fulfillment there of Hosea. Peter and Paul apply this to the church. And specifically, this would apply to the Gentiles. To the Gentiles, a people who were not God's people. The Gentiles. It's you and I. We're Gentiles. We were not a people of God. But now through Christ we have become the people of God. You see, Gentiles along with Jews have now in the new covenant become a part of the church, the spiritual household of God. But how did they, or how have we become a people of God? Well, notice Peter tells us here, he says, the means by which this happened is by God's mercy. It's by God's mercy. Peter says there at the end of verse 10, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
What is mercy here? Mercy is compassion. It's compassion. God has shown us compassion. And now we are the recipients of His mercy. Mercy is God's withholding from us the just punishment for our sin. God has withheld from us as His chosen people the just punishment that we deserve because of our sin against Him. He's shown us mercy. He's shown us compassion. You and I deserve punishment for our sins. We deserve it. We deserve justly eternal hell and damnation. That's what we deserve. But praise God for His mercy. Praise God for showing us compassion. Peter told us about this mercy back in chapter 1 and verse 3 where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've been born again not because of anything that we've done, not because we deserve it. In fact, all that we deserve is eternal damnation. We've been born again because of God's great mercy, His compassion toward us. We've been saved, and as the saved ones, we are now a part of God's spiritual house. We belong to the church, all because of His mercy. Did we deserve it? No. Did we earn it? No. And why has God chosen to show us mercy? Answer? I don't know. I don't know. Why has God chosen to show me mercy? I don't know. But He has. And all I can do is praise Him and thank Him and give Him all the praise and glory that He alone deserves. And that's what we've been called to do. In closing, what should this great truth do for us? What should this truth of God's favor upon us do in our hearts? Let me quickly give you three things it should do in our hearts. Number one, it should humble us. This should humble us. The fact that God has chosen us, has called us, has redeemed us, taken us out of darkness and placed us into His marvelous light, that should humble us. You see, the doctrine of election is a doctrine that shouldn't cause us to become prideful and arrogant, but it should humble us. 
we've done nothing to deserve salvation. Nothing. We haven't earned our salvation. All that we can do is humble ourselves before God and thank Him and praise Him for choosing us. Which leads to the second thing that we should do. It should cause us to praise Him. To praise Him. The fact that we belong to the spiritual house of God because of His mercy should cause our hearts to rejoice and to sing praises to Him. We can't boast in ourselves because there is nothing that we've done to boast in. All we can do is praise God and give Him thanks for saving us. And listen, church, we're not called just to praise Him with our lips, but we're also called to praise Him with our actions, with our deeds. When we live our lives in obedience to what God has called us to do, that is an act of worship to Him. It's an act of praise. It's an act of showing how much we love Him when we live in obedience to Him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's the way that we can show God that we praise Him that we thank Him, that we love Him by living our lives in obedience to Him. And then number three, a third thing it should do should stir our hearts to tell others about our great God who's shown us mercy. It should cause us to want to tell the world of the great things that our God has done for us. I can remember hearing stories of my grandmother at family gatherings talking about Jesus. And I can remember those as a boy. She just wanted to talk about Jesus all the time. And there were some people that got annoyed with her. But you know what? Jesus was precious to her. She loved him. I remember walking up upon my grandfather down in San Diego who was sitting on a park bench next to a stranger. You know what he's doing to that stranger? He's telling him about Jesus. Because Jesus is precious to him. Church, that's what we've been called to do. We have been shown mercy by our great God. May that drive us and motivate us to go and tell the world about our great God. And if they persecute us, so be it. So be it. Plead with them to come to Christ. Beg them. Do whatever it takes to come to Christ. To come to the light. To turn from their sin and to trust in Christ. what we've been called to do. Listen, church, we are the spiritual household of God. We belong to Him and He loves us and He treasures us. May we love Him 
and treasure him above all else as we continue to grow together as the spiritual house of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love, for your great mercy, for your great compassion which you have shown to sinners like us. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession. And we belong to you. Father, we thank you for calling us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Lord, I pray for anyone who's here this morning who is still walking in the darkness. Lord, I pray that they would be convicted, that they would be burdened and overwhelmed with their sin. And Lord, that their sin would draw, drop them to their knees and run to you, a merciful and compassionate God. That they would beg you cry out to you for forgiveness of their sin and trust in Christ alone. God, I pray that you would do that work in their heart, that you would grant them that gift of salvation, that today would be the day of salvation for them. And Father, as those who are a part of your spiritual house, as those who belong to you, Father, help us to live our lives being faithful and obedient to you. For that is the purpose to which you have called us, that we might proclaim the excellencies of our great God who has transferred us from darkness and into light. We give you praise and honor and glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.